Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we spend an hour with the man who scored perhaps the most famous goal in Canadian hockey history. Paul Henderson joins me to reflect on 50 years since the Summit Series, the Cold War on Ice, and shares what went through his mind when he scored that Summit Series winning goal in Moscow. It's not what you might expect. We hear from a BC woman who, after witnessing a near-fatal drug overdose on public transit five years ago, has now made it her mission to teach students more about the realities of drug overdoses and how to prevent them. Information she'd like to see added to the curriculum in BC high schools. But first, the remaining suspect in a deadly mass stabbing in Saskatchewan over the weekend was located and captured by police today northwest of Saskatoon. He later died of what had been reported as self-inflicted wounds during that operation. We speak to a manhunt expert about how the day unfolded, the challenges and dangers of a high-risk arrest, and how police will try to figure out now what went right and what didn't. Continuing with our coverage of what unfolded in Saskatchewan late today, uh, the most wanted man in Canada, Miles Sanderson, stopped by police. We've heard now some updates from the RCMP about what exactly happened during that operation. Uh, There were many reports of a stolen vehicle traveling at high speed along the highway. We understand that the RCMP intercepted that vehicle, uh, forced it into a ditch. They then placed uh, the suspect, Miles Sanderson, under arrest, but apparently he uh, later died in hospital, I I gather, from self-inflicted wounds. We're hearing uh, more about that. Um, We're speaking with uh, Lenny DePaul. He's a former commander with the U.S. Marshall Fugitive Task Force, former host of the TV show Manhunters Fugitive Task Force. Uh, From what you can make of the description of that, I know it was quite timeline, but uh, what did you hear from from that? It sounded like an operation that you've probably seen before. Yes, well, once they identified uh, the suspect in that vehicle, again, the public remain vigilant. I mean, there were calls being made and whatnot, but once they put them in that avalanche, you know, it was a full court press at that point. I mean, you guys did a great job with social media that was fired up. His, his picture was plastered everywhere. Uh, wasn't too many places that he could hide in, but uh, yeah, it was a full court press. And, and uh, you know, once he was identified and, and they, uh, and they got that vehicle stopped, you know, I, I think she did mention there was a knife uh, that was also found in the vehicle. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe he used that, maybe not. Uh, not sure what the what the cause of death was, but uh, you know, again, this could have got this could have went from zero to 100 miles an hour um, very quickly, and uh, uh, it ended it ended uh, the way you know I'm sure a lot of law enforcement wanted it to end. So yeah, because I mean, I imagine the real danger there is is you know this person, you suspect this person has committed a mass murder. You're not sure what kind of weapons they may have. You know they probably don't have much to lose. You certainly don't want anyone else to get hurt. So in that situation, I imagine you you just take advantage of the fact that the road's probably fairly clear and and then you do what you do because the importance here is that no one else is injured. Well, you, you got to do it by the numbers. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, he, this guy was known to law enforcement. I mean, he, he was a parole violator. I mean, he had a, he had a pretty lengthy uh, rap sheet and been arrested several times in the past. Criminal record, assault, assault with deadly weapons. So, I mean, he was well known. Um, yeah, you certainly had to approach it with extreme caution. And, and uh, you know, in a situation like this and taking into consideration everything that happened this past week, you know, you know you're looking at a, a variety of things from, a, from our lens. Uh, with respect to suicide by cop, like I said earlier, or, you know, is it going to be a shootout, obviously a car chase and whatnot, but uh, uh, it could go down many different ways. I've seen it over my you know, three decades of tracking violent people. 
Yeah, I would imagine that the the ultimate goal is always to try to capture the suspect uh, alive, right? To try and to try and bring them to court, to bring right. them to justice. But I mean, in this situation, you, I, I, we don't know all the details of exactly what happened. I imagine we will. Um, but in this case, I mean, the priority is to protect everybody else. Is that right? Well, the priority is to protect everybody, including the suspect. I mean, it's not you know your mindset is not. Uh, uh, you know, where you need to react and, you know, but you will react accordingly. I mean, if he, if he responded uh, in a violent manner, then you have to eliminate the threat. I mean, it's as simple as that, but he, you know, he, he ended up, I guess it was a car chase. I mean, they pitted the vehicle. Uh, they did it by the numbers. It, it, everybody, you know, reacted the way they should have. Um, and, and that's something, you know, it's the way it played out. I mean, training is very important. Obviously you get, you get in these situations and, in my world, when you're knocking doors down for a living every morning and track, you know, chasing people that don't want to go to jail, uh, you have to you have to rely on your training, muscle memory, and rely on your partners and, and so on. So, you know, again, it worked out it worked out well. But to answer your question, yeah, everybody, uh, you know, you look for everybody to go home uh, safe and, and uh, including including the uh, the suspect. So. Yeah, I, I mean, but the training must be not. I mean, this goes without saying. The training must be nothing like having to do it in real life. It must happen at a much faster speed, and the stakes are so high. So, yeah, it must be. Um, it must have been a really challenging day to to have this happen. Oh, you go from zero to one hundred miles an hour very very quickly, and you do rely on your training. And again, it's muscle memory. And I mean, sadly, the shootings that I've been involved in, you you, you sit back, you know, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, and and you just react uh the way you were trained and and uh again i was a huge proponent of training when i when i ran the largest fugitive task force of its kind in the world uh, for for quite a long time and and uh we trained a lot so again everybody needs to go home safe and and uh you know you look out for everybody's best interest i guess after the fact these things are always dissected as well to see what was done right what could be done better next time around and so forth Oh, absolutely. And, and again, you can't Monday morning quarterback a, a, anyone um, the way anything happened unless you're in that situation. And, you know, the men and women that, that are downrange doing God's work, as I would say, they, you know, uh, it's a tough job. I mean, it's a tough climate uh, around the globe right now for law enforcement, but uh, uh, it's a tough job, especially in a situation like uh, like you had there. Yeah. So if you were to look back at the last four days and so on, I mean, I guess ultimately this this ended in a way that a lot of people we had spoken to already predicted it would, that at some point he would be on the move and someone would spot him. And that was the opportunity uh, to at least neutralize the threat to the community, because the threat to the community was obviously immense. I mean, we still had communities going under lockdown when there were sightings and so forth. Well, sure. You're in a rural area. I mean, you're not in downtown Manhattan. You got, you know, this guy wasn't going to hide in plain sight, especially at six, six foot one, 240 pounds. I mean, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he was pretty identifiable. And again, his, his photo was plastered everywhere. Uh, so, you know, it was tough for him to hide uh, in that area. And I, you know, I always say you can run, but you can't hide when you run. You only go to jail tired. And, you know, your assessment, I guess, of, and you mentioned it earlier, your assessment of how this entire operation unfolded was that uh, police generally did a pretty good job well it appears that way and and absolutely i mean it ended like i said it ended the way a lot of people thought it would but uh you know law enforcement with the assets that were available as soon as this manhunt began with with aviation support i'm sure bloodhounds canine night vision thermal imaging whatever was needed manpower money for reward money the streets talk so uh you know and people like i said the the, the uh the public was uh, was a big help, and and 
it was it was uh, it was an investigation that that certainly appeared to be done by the numbers and uh, I, I salute each and every one of them that uh, they put this thing to bed. Yeah, you know how tough an operation like today's really is, right? It's I, I was I don't know if you remember the DC sniper case and and uh, yeah. and the Boston bombers, but I was there for for both of those and and you talk about an intense manhunt and a chaotic scene and multiple different agencies that are you know. Uh, trying to hit on all cylinders and, and, and trying to, you know, the communities, uh, you know, everybody's sleeping with one eye open. It's not, it's not easy, uh, you know, especially with a violent, uh, violent predator or these, these, these folks, you know, these fugitives that are, they don't care if they live or die. I mean, we got something going on right now in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, where somebody's right. shooting up and down and uh, yeah, it's getting a little, a little crazy out there, but yeah, it's, it's tough. It really is. And, and uh, you just want to make sure that you, you know, you bring this thing home sooner than later, and and nobody else gets hurt. Any when you look at what are the questions that need to be answered now? Do you think, from your experience, what do we need to know about what happened now after the fact? Once obviously quarterback Monday morning quarterbacking at hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, but what would you like to know about what what unfolded uh, at this point? Well, you always go back to Jump Street. I mean, you, you know, you want to start at the, you know, what what was the motive? Uh, what 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 caused this? I mean, he, you know, I hear, and again, I I did not work this investigation. I just a lot of hearsay going on about the narcotics that he was involved in, drinking at a young age, and you know, the upbringing and so on and so forth. But fast forward uh, with these these uh, egregious crime uh, or these the, the felonies and the stabbings and. And what would motivate somebody to do that? Um, his criminal record. Why, you know, I, again, I don't know. I don't want a Monday morning quarterback uh, uh, parole commission or why this guy was even out or what his background was. But he, he was a violent. He was a violent guy. Uh, the brother, Miles. So, uh, you know, and it, it speaks volumes if, in fact, he, uh, you know, he killed his own brother uh, along with ten others. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, you know. Yeah. He. Uh, he wasn't to be taken lightly, but to, but to look back on this whole investigation, I mean, again, I thought the RCMP did a great job and everybody else involved. It was a collective effort. Uh, it was, it was an intense manhunt. I think she mentioned over close to 200 investigators were downrange uh, for four days trying to, trying to find these two. And um, four days is not, <laughs> it's not a long time, Ben, unfortunately, uh, when you got somebody that's gone off the grid and, has gone dark and you've got a community that's, you know, like I said, sleeping with one eye open. It's, it's tough. Well, thank you so much, Lenny DePaul. Thank you so much for your time tonight and your insight into this and for sticking around as this was all, we were finding out more about what was unfolding. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good evening. We are marking 50 years this month since the most celebrated hockey series, perhaps the most talked about hockey series in history, played out over eight games during the month of September, both here at home and in Moscow. The 1972 Summit Series was meant to show once and for all that the Soviets, so dominant on the amateur stage, would be no match for the NHL's very best. Team Canada's roster included 12 future Hall of Famers, names like Esposito, Dryden, Makita, Clark, Cornway, the list goes on. And the one player who will be forever associated with that incredible four weeks, Paul Henderson. And the goal that would win it for Canada in the dying moments of that eighth and final game in Moscow, the goal heard right across this country. Here's Foster Hewitt with that call. Cornwallier has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for it and fell. Here's another shot. Fight by the score. Henderson right in front of the net. And the 
Foster Hewitt there. I wasn't quite two, and I get shivers when I hear that call because I've heard it so many times over the years. Many Canadians will remember that moment. Where were you? Let me know, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. Share your memories. Henderson, of course, was not a superstar at the time. He did score 38 goals that previous year, earning him an invite to Team Canada. But by the time those eight Summit Series games were done, he'd earned a place in Canadian hockey history, game-winning goals in not just Game 8, but also in must-wins in Game 6 and 7. And the man who scored what has often been called the goal of the century, perhaps the most important goal in Canadian history, number 19, Paul Henderson, joins me now from Mississauga. Thank you for your time tonight. Looking forward to it. Amazing to think, I mean... 50 years it's it must have flown by in some ways or, or been it must have been a bit of both goes faster every year i'll tell you <laughs> coming back bring me back to to 1972 that summer when you were invited to play on that team um you must have looked at that roster and thought i wonder how much i'm going to play and uh what kind of impact i'm going to have <laughs> <laughs> well ronnie ellis and i looked at the uh we thought we uh, Normie Ullman would have invited. We really thought our whole line would have been invited. But right. anyway, we looked at that. There were seven left wingers, seven right wingers, and seven center ice. But Ronnie and I, really good, even to this day, really good friend. And we looked at the lineup, and we figured if we got Stan Makita would be our first choice. We'd be probably maybe the fifth line. But at the worst, if we got Bobby Clark, we'd definitely be the seventh line. <laughs> so... We go to the, the practice, and it's Clark, Ellison, Henderson. And so we went out after the uh, practice and had a couple of beers. And I said, you know, I really, Ronnie and I really want to play in uh, in Toronto. And the only way we're going to get to play in Toronto is we've got to go out there and work our rear end off. We've got to make the team. And so why don't we get serious and really show these guys who can play and we didn't know Bobby Clark. I think was only 21, 22. Yeah, he was just a kid, and, right? Uh, yeah. We you didn't have to, you know. He was ready to play at any time, any place, anywhere, yeah. and do anything. And so, anyway, we decided to work hard, and we did. And we were we were big underdogs, and and so the uh, just busted our rear end to make the truth. And then we played a. It became evident that we were pretty good, and we played a red-white game. In fact, we played three of them, and our line was probably as good a line anybody out in the ice. The last one I scored, we beat uh, Phil's team uh, 5-2, I think it was, and I got two, got one, and, and we knew we were going to probably be in the first game in uh, in uh, Montreal. You know, and we wanted to play in Toronto for sure, but then uh, – the only line that played all eight games together, actually. Yeah, I mean, you were one of those lines that really clicked, just watching back uh, over the footage and so on. So in Montreal, you score the second goal. You're up 2 nothing. Things are looking good. Um, how did you feel coming into this series? And I gather after scoring that second goal, the whole team, including yourself, had a bit of a, a moment of clarity about what was going to be lie ahead in terms of your opposition. Well, it, it, Clark and Ellis remember me coming back to the bench, and I looked at them and said, just after I scored, we come off. <clears throat> I said, boys, this is going to be a very long series. We knew even leading to nothing, I knew that we were in trouble. Uh, the, the, they broke every rule in the book. I played for Punch Imlac. You never went backwards. Never. He even hated a drop pass. They right. come up. They didn't like what they looked at. They went back and regrouped. 
you know, what is this? And then poor Dryden, every time he thought they were going to shoot, uh, they passed. And every time he thought they were going to pass, they shot. And so, yeah, it was a rude awakening. And, and the physical conditioning was just, and the biggest mistake we made, or Harry made, our coach, Harry Sinden, he only dressed five defensemen. And after two periods, they were done like a dog's dinner. It was not good during the third period. Yeah, and I think if people remember back then, it's not like everyone spent the whole summer working out, right? I mean, summer was, <laughs> I remember stories of the Esposito brothers, you know, paving driveways in the Sioux and things like that. This was not about conditioning and getting ready for a series of this uh, nature. Well, you know, we knew they were good hockey players, but, you know, look at the firepower we had. I mean, we had 12 Hall of Famers on that team. And you start off with Esposito, Esposito, Cornway, and Mahovlich, and then you come back with, Hatfield, Gilbert, and Rattel, probably the best line in the whole NHL. And then you got Rick Martin and Perot, you know, it goes on and on. And so I figured if if their goaltenders really played well and ours didn't have a good game, they might tie or they might win a game. But, you know, we, we just got too too much power there. And But that went out the window <laughs> by the six-minute mark in the first period. I mean, there must have been a sense, though, I mean, they had been playing together a lot. So this was a team. This was not a bunch of, of this was not an all-star team. This was a team full, you know, this was a team. Um, that must have played a factor, too. They knew they knew each other. Well, they put that team together for three years, and that's all they did. And they practiced 11 months of the year. And, of course, they wanted to play us before the season started. And so they knew that they were going to catch us uh, out of shape and, uh, and they were quite confident, you know. But as, and uh, and they were just great hockey players. They were a lot better than I thought they were. Their, their passing skills, their their stick handling skills, their skill level, they were better than we are. But when it came down to it, like even Tarasov said this: like we we can compete with the Canadian skating, shooting, whatever it is, but we just don't have their heart. We just their passion to win and their willingness to just make it happen. He said, we just can't do it. And I really believe that's the difference between uh, communism and, and democracy. Right. You know, it's uh, and the Canadians were known, but that's our game. I mean, it's in yeah, our you, DNA. Every kid know. that grows up wants to be an NHL hockey player. Most. Well, it did when I grew up anyway. You did. I mean, you had a lot to lose there. I, mem- I remember hearing that you talked to your wife after that first game and sort of said, Wow. You know, it's great. It's a great honor to be part of this team, but not if not if we lose. Well, after we lost the first game in Moscow, I said to her, if we don't win the last three games, we're going to be known as the biggest losers in the history of Canadian hockey. And I think all of us knew that. But the thing is, the, the good thing about it is, even though well, we played mostly shorthanded, that first game in Moscow. And actually, I, I scored two goals in that game also. Yeah. But we really felt that we had outplayed them. And we were now getting into shape. We'd gone to uh, Sweden, and we played uh, two games there. And now, but we were getting down to these are the guys that are going to basically play, maybe change one or two people. And so I remember Harry Sinden said after the game, he came in and said, guys, we outplayed them. We should have won this game. But he said, all I want you to do is think about the next game. Let's win game six, and then we'll worry about game seven. And and, and I think that was really – and then he walked out. He didn't go big. He said, we, we outplayed them. We should have won the game. And so that gave us a bit of uh, confidence there. And 
thank goodness it uh, turned out pretty well. It did. I've watched, obviously, a lot of the highlights of that Vancouver game, Espo at the end of the game. You know, the fans were upset. What was the mood like in the dressing room after that fourth game in Vancouver and heading ultimately to Sweden and back to Moscow? Well, it wasn't good. And uh, we took two bad penalties at the start of that game in Montreal, and they got two power play goals right off the bat and basically uh, took us out of the game. And and the fans were disappointed, and I was disappointed too. And so they started booing us, and it wasn't a good feeling. But Esposito, <laughs> we had four captains, but Esposito was our leader on and off the ice. And uh, although he did, we none of us saw that interview that he did with Johnny Esau. Right. And after I saw it, yeah, he never saw it for years either. I, they should have showed it to us because the sweat was running off him, and Esau just let him go on. Yeah, and that was a great interview. Esau just let him go on. We're disappointed and we're <laughs> despondent, and we are trying, folks. And they got a good team, but I don't think you know. <laughs> and so. Yeah. But we come back to uh, to Toronto, and I mean, even our families didn't want to talk to us. It wasn't good. But it, the, 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 we went to Sweden. We played two games over there, got used to the bigger ice, and now we're starting to you know, get together as a team, and we're used to the bigger ice service. But one of the, 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 one of the reasons we won that is the 3,000 Canadians that went over there. Yep. We lost the first game in Moscow. And we stood on the blue line and had to listen to the national anthem. It's a wonderful piece of music, but it's too long when you lose. And we had to skate off the ice that walked past those Canadian fans. And they stood up and they gave us a cheer. They went crazy. And it was a miserable night in Moscow. We get back there about an hour later. And there were several hundred of them outside our hotel. We got off the bus and they went crazy again, just cheering at Canada. In fact, that most of them are hammered. It's got nothing to do with it. But this is what I'll say. Before the game six, seven, and eight, the Canadian national anthem has never been sung with such fervor and energy as it was. I'm standing on the blue line, and my there's hairs on my arm going up. And they got behind us like crazy. And I think it was that Esposito's talk said, listen, we need some help. And boy, did they ever come through. Yeah. What was it like landing in Moscow? I mean, obviously, at this point, the Soviets must have thought, hey, we might be able to win this and we might be able to win this on home ice. And of course, we know all the stories of what was going on behind the scenes, some of the shenanigans going on behind the scenes with the refing and so on. Well, the other thing I should tell you, too, that I, I got a concussion. That's right. Over there. That's right. And cut me down. I went into the bed. Thank goodness I was wearing a, a helmet. If I hadn't, I probably would have died. But anyway, I was knocked out, and Jim Murray, our doctor, they get me off the ice, and I had a pounding headache, of course. But he examined me, and he says, Paul, you got to take your equipment off. You've had a concussion. And so Harry Sinden came in, and he said, uh, told me what the doctor had said to him, and you better take it off. And I said to him, Harry, please don't do this. Let me play. I'll take care of myself, but let me play. And I'll never forget that. I remember looking at him, and Harry said, well, Paul, we sure as hell need you. And if you want to play, I am not going to stop you. And I said, well, give me some time. And so I laid there for another 15 minutes or so and went back out. And actually, I think the first ship back out, Clarkie hit me with a pass, and I went on a breakaway and scored on uh, 
on Trechiak to put us up 4-1. And if we'd have won that game, I would have had this winning goal also. But but the you know t- today I'd have never been left back you know let back out on the ice and that's why I say that. I had six cushions of the concussions that I know of but that's why I'm not very sharp today because I have an excuse and now <laughs> so, I got cancer so I got cancer I got concussions I got an excuse for everything. You sound pretty sharp, Paul. For for a man who's at who's seventy is it seventy nine? No, that's uh, you sound you sound great. Mm-hmm. I, the memory the memories of those days too they're so vivid. Um, what was it like just being in Moscow? Was it was it hostile? Did you feel the weight that that the Soviet team now must be under? Because obviously expectations would have been up by the time they got back because they were ahead. Well, for sure, but I think we we took them for granted. But after they won the first game, I think that they started you know they couldn't lose now i mean they're, they're going to win one of the last three games and that's the worst thing you can do is underestimate your opponent but I, that was one of the things but the thing that 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 i think most of us were just amazed is the quality of life of the average person was just awful hmm. we come in from the airport when we landed it was at night and never saw one house it was all uh condominium you know apartment, apartment buildings yeah and there would be a light hanging down with no just the lamp just the light bulb no shade or anything and um, it, it was bleak if you were a communist the part of the system was okay but the average person was just and it, it, we hated them but we should never have hated them we should have hated their system because they were just like us like Trechak, a great guy they were trying to keep a wife happy and raise children just like we were. And they were in a very tough situation. But the thing about it, if you were a really good athlete, they took pretty good care of you compared to a lot of other places. But And I come back and I said, if I owned a company, I would take my people over there for three or four days. And they would never complain about Canada again. And so then all of us that we come back, I've always believed we lived in the best country in the world. And that... Uh, that trip sure solidified it. Tell me about game seven. I mean, you've already talked about having a concussion, um, but you, you get the sense, though, that that you can win this. There's confidence in the dressing room at this point. Well, there was. I think we all, when, like Harry said, when we, we outplayed them the first game, and that was the first time that we had really done it, and it was bad refereeing that we lost the game. And then and game six was another solid game, and then, uh, game eight came along, and uh, and it was a real close game. And just you know, near the end of the game, I I think I scored the best goal of my whole life, with just over two minutes left. I went, I wasn't a guy that could go end to end like a Perot or a Cornway, somebody like that. Uh, uh, but anyway, I did, and there was a one on four, and I went in, put it in the top corner, and and the interesting thing is. I said after the game to Eleanor, I, I probably will never score a bigger goal in my whole life. How prescient. <laughs> and then two days later, I score, unfortunately, a garbage goal that everybody's been watching over this years. I tell you, you know what, Foster here, Henderson makes a wild stab forward and falls. Now, yes. every hockey player loves to hear that, don't you? <laughs> but then he said scores, and that made up for it. He did, yeah. No, I mean, everyone remembers that finally, that sort of idea that somehow you'd come back almost like a wrestler getting back up off the mat, right? That somehow you'd come back out of nowhere 
to to score that goal that it was almost like and and I know this let the, the game 7 goal is remarkable because it's such a beautiful goal but the game 8 goal there's a really interesting story behind how you wound up on the ice too because you you weren't supposed to be there were you well Clark Ellison and I came off with about a minute left and Sinden sent out um, Esposito Cornway and Peter Mahovlich and then he he came down to us even though it wasn't our turn he said if they come off you're up and so, okay, we're up. And so we're sitting there, and at the one-minute mark, I looked up, and, and the Russians had told us that, uh, 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 during the third period that if the game ended up in a tie, because there's going to be no overtime play, that, because the whole series would have been a tie, that they scored one more goal than us, and because of European hockey, they were going to claim victory. And so it was just spontaneous. I, I got to get on the ice, and I stood up, and I did something I never did before, and I never did it again. Started to yell at Peter Mahovlich to come off the ice. Frank was sitting beside me, and he said, what the hell are you doing? His brother, right, Frank Mahovlich. Exactly. Yeah. Peter comes off, and then I jump over the board. But could you imagine me? I called Peter Mahovlich off the ice, and the Russians would have gone down and scored, and we'd have lost that series with me and the ice. See, I'd be living in Siberia today, not in if, Mississippi. If you were lucky. Yeah, that's... <laughs> But that's it. But but instead, so tell me how that happens because we've all watched it, and I'm sure people love, and I, I understand people love to tell you where they were when, when you scored that goal. But how did you see it? How did it unfold for you uh, in those last thirty seconds? Well, what, I I jumped over the boards and Cornway had it at the far side, and I'm a right hand shot coming off left wing, and I yelled at him, and he saw me, and he threw it across, and I was hoping just a one time, but right into the top corner, and I'll. Uh, uh, Ovechkin's type of deal. Yeah, but he put it, it was too far in front of me, and I had to reach for it. And their defenseman come up, put a stick between my legs, and I was going so fast I crashed into the boards, and fell down like Foster said. And I said, I, I still got time. I still got time. I can go do it again. And I got up and and I Esposito walked in that Trechak and Trechak said it wasn't a hard shot. He should have never let the rebound go. Oh my God. And I panicked. I just got it. And I tried to shoot it right along the ice initially. And he threw his pad out and got it. But he was down, took it off the side and put it, I had about a foot to put it in. And you know, the interesting part, my dad had died in 1968. And I was very close to my mom, probably closer to my mom, my dad. And I hadn't have thought of my dad the whole series. That puck went across the line. And I said, Dad would have loved this one. And I had a touch of a melancholy. Can you believe that? And, that? and then I jumped into Cornway's arm and jumped into his arms. And that's why he's had a couple of uh, back operations over the years. Since then. <laughs> so you and thought it was yeah. saying that we did it. We did it. We knew that we But, you know, the interesting thing, we go back to the bench and Harry said to us, you guys finish it off. And I said, Harry, I'm done. I, I, I'd be petrified to play the last 34 seconds. You put somebody else out there. I, I I was I, I just knew it. I, I I was petrified to play the last thirty four seconds. Yeah, and, just in uh, case you were don't you don't want to tempt fate too much. Well, I, I was just done physically, yeah. mentally, emotionally. I was done. And 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 you know the interesting after the game we go in there and there was no jumping around or anything like that. I think everybody there was a smile. We we're having a beer and just look at the guy across or at the room and so. It was at least a half an hour before I even get took my skates off. 
we just sat there and enjoyed the moment and uh, great memory. Yeah, no kidding. And you thought of your dad. Amazing how the memory works, right? How the mind works. It sometimes. is. That very connection yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, those days, I mean, you know, long before the time of social media and so on, you would have known that Canadians were watching back home, but sitting in a dressing room in Moscow, and I, you know, I think that arena is gone, but I've been to the rink in Moscow. It's kind of out on the, on a highway somewhere. It's not particularly a particularly nice spot. Um, you know, you would have not really had any idea of how just how excited everyone was back home. No, not to the, but, but, but what did happen, like we got telegrams and, and bags full of, uh, of postcards that they sent over. So we knew by this time that the people were behind us. And then of course, those 3000 crazy Canadians. <laughs> so we knew there was a big interest, but not nothing to where it ever you know, it, it came to be the whole. I I love that. If I don't know whether you've seen this, the Prime Minister Diefenbaker, him yeah. and his wife were sitting there watching it. You know, he, he was almost stunned. So, but uh, I think it was. They, they said that there was something like sixteen million people Canadians, and and I still have people to this day come up and tell me where they were. They want to tell me three things. They want to tell me where they were, what they felt like, and who they were with. It's just indelibly. In, in in their minds. And so, yeah, it's Amazing. been a great celebration. Good. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it just, I can only imagine that, that it's, it's funny because although it's your goal, it's really our goal, right? I mean, I think, I think there are certain things that people look at athletes do and think that's their accomplishment. You know, Usain Bolt winning the hundred meters in record time, that, that's his accomplishment, but somehow that goal became ours. It became everybody's, it became a <laughs> Canadian thing as opposed to just a Paul Henderson thing. It must be a nice feeling. Well, it is, but I, I'll tell you who, Phil Esposito was the leader, mm. and and he was the best player on the ice. And I, and I would also suggest to you, the best period of hockey ever played by a Canadian hockey player up until 1972 would have been the third period. I mean, he mm. just took the, the team on his back and uh, and I, I think played the best, you know, hockey of his life. He scored the first two goals and he assisted on the, on Cornways and my goal. Yeah. And so uh, he was, uh, and every team needs a leader. And we had four captains, but he was the guy that just really, uh, just he did a fabulous job. The talk, everything he did, you know, that's what a leader does. He does what's required at the right time. That talk in Montreal, and then, of course, the series that he played. He was he was incredible. There's been some incredible stories. I, I know because I've heard you share them in the past about just some of the things that people have told you about how much that goal meant to them. Uh, you saved a marriage apparently as well. At least one of, as one of the stories goes with that goal of one of the many Canadians who were celebrating that day. Well, yeah, this was one of my favorites. Uh, I got a letter from a lady at Christmas time and she said to me, Paul, thank you. Thank you for scoring that goal because you saved my marriage. She went on to say that her and her husband had been going through tough times and they decided to separate. And he came, the afternoon of the game, start of the third period, he came over to where she was and what he they were going to sign their divorce papers and it'd be all over. But he looked in and he saw the game was on and he said, can I watch the third period? And not that they were that, but they were just due to the old marriages over. So we come in and sit down and of course, Esposito scores and they cheer a little bit. Then Cornway scores and cheer a little more 
And then when I scored, they went crazy. They were jumping around and cheering, and they found their arms around each other, and they looked at each other. What the hell are we doing getting divorced? We should not be getting divorced. And he said, we got some counseling, and he said, we put our marriage back together, and we are doing really well. But if you had not scored that goal, both of us, he would have walked out of the door, I would have let him, and our marriage would have been over. But in the excitement of that moment, well, is that a great story or what? I, yeah. I mean, I, I just love it. And I've got, I still give, I, I got a letter from a mother yesterday, and her husband got four tickets to the game. And uh, she gave up her ticket to let her 20-year-old son go over there. And it's his birthday coming up. <laughs> He's 70 now. Nice. And she wanted me to, you know, call him and say hello to him. So it, it just it, it just never goes away. It but never I goes was away. Doing a, I was doing a golf tournament for the Lymphoma uh, Society. I'm, of course, I got cancer. And last week, they had a tournament up in uh, Woodbridge. And I was going around to the different groups. I didn't play. I go around and thank them for coming and then, you know, getting pictures and in, in, uh, uh, that uh, kind of stuff. And so, so many of them were saying, you should be in the Hall of Fame. This is just a joke, you know, and I get that all the time. And I tell them, the worst thing they could do is put me in the Hall of Fame. Because they put me in the Hall of Fame, nobody would be upset anybody, but, and everybody would forget me. This way, everybody's ticked off, and, it, and I'm, I stay in the, in the limelight sort of yeah. way. It would be nice. To be honest, it'd be nice if you were. I mean, it is such. Oh, well, I is, wouldn't turn yeah. it down. I'll tell you that. <laughs> nice if you were. I have to say, tell me, Paul, about the chronic lymphocytic leukemia because this is something that goes back a while now to two thousand and nine. Here we are, twenty twenty two, and you sound good. You look good. Uh, how how are things going? Well, when I was diagnosed, uh, and it was a surprise. I was, I, in fact, right today, I'm the same weight as I turned pro in nineteen sixty three. I have a full gym in my basement. I've never been out of shape in my life. And I was feeling well and went in for my annual checkup and the blood work showed. And then they did a biopsy and I found out I had cancer. And they just told me I had CLL, hmm. lymphoma and leukemia. And uh, so they said, you probably would, you're probably not going to need treatments for, you know, 18 months, maybe a couple of uh, years. And you'll have to have chemo and you'll probably get three, four good years and then it'll come back and you'll have to hit it again, but you still might have another couple of years. So you might have five, six years. So I was 66 at the time and my father died at 49 and my sister at 48, both with heart attacks. And so the Henderson gene is not that good. Uh, well, that's, if I make the 71, that'd pretty, be good. But anyway, I, I got to, by 12, I'd lost 30 pounds and I looked like I had cancer. You know, you got that gray look. And I decided I wasn't going to do chemo. I figured that would kill me anyway. So, But I was very fortunate. I got into a clinical trial down at National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, a cancer hospital down there. And they saved my life. And uh, there was some serious side effects to the drug, but they told me it wasn't a cure, but uh, it, it, it could hold it at bay. And so it did. And so, uh, but I was really fortunate that uh, the, the 57, of us, 57 of us were in this trial, and I lasted longer than anybody. But just before the COVID started, it, my numbers went bad, and I knew I had to do something else. And by this time, there was another drug called Veniclax. Mm. And this and this drug that I'm on now is even doing better than the last one. Wow. And so I, I'm hoping 
that's what we're trying to raise money all the time to hopefully we can find a cure for it. And uh, my oldest, my oldest sister is really going struggling right now too with cancer. So it's an insidious poison, but I've been very, very fortunate. And so yeah, it's 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 obviously wonderful to have you here for the fiftieth, right? I mean, it's great that the great that you're feeling good and in good shape. I'm about to interview Vladislav Tretsiak next week. Any last words uh, that you'd like uh, to share with him before we before we? I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Yeah, you tell him I am so thankful that he let me score that goal. But I, I got a great story. I was inducted in the International Hockey Hall of Fame back in 2012 over in Stockholm. That was the year that, uh, uh, well, the bunch went in. Anyway, they, he comes out and he's, I didn't know, but he's introducing me. And he said some nice things about me, probably because he had to. <laughs> but then he looked at me and he pointed his finger at me and he said, Paul, I know why you scored that last goal. I've looked at those replays over and over. And then he paused for about six or seven seconds, just looking at me. Paul, the reason you scored that goal, it was very bad goaltending. And he thought the whole house down. And he came up and gave me a big bear hug. I've got to know him. He's just a terrific guy. He really, really is. And you will enjoy him. His English is really good. And so uh, he'll do a lot better job in an interview than I have. I'll oh, I, I, uh, Paul Henderson, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much for sharing your memories of that, uh, that series, of that wonderful day, uh, that wonderful goal. Much appreciated. Thank you. It's amazing how sometimes a certain incident can change the course of your future. Um, one incident can sort of change your mind about who you want to be and what it is you want to do. And that's what happened to my next guest, Chloe Goodison. Um, she was on a sky train in Coquitlam back in 2017, and um, someone fainted, or at least that's what they thought had happened. People called 911. Paramedics came on, administered naloxone. And that's when people realized that what, in fact, she had had was an opioid overdose. Now, that's something we know, unfortunately, all too much about these days, specifically in this province, but right across the country. In BC alone, there have been 10,000 deaths since we declared a uh, national public health emergency back in 2016 because of the toxic drug supply. But this uh, encouraged Chloe to set out to try to make sure that people knew more about recognizing the symptoms, about recognizing what an overdose is. How do you prevent it? Uh, how do you reverse it, for instance? Um, she's at Simon Fraser University now, studying, amongst other things, I believe it's public health sciences. I didn't want to get that wrong. But she's also working with a group called Nalox Home that she created that educates high school students, people that were her, her age now, the same age that she was then, about what an overdose looks like and how to use naloxone as well. Uh, and it's something she would like to see spread further and uh, to tell us all about it and explain exactly what that incident was like back in 2017. Chloe Goodison, founder of Home, joins me now. Thanks for your time. Hi, how are you? Well, and thanks for doing this. It's a really interesting initiative that you've been working on. It's not new, right? You've been doing this for a bit of time, but I guess we could start at the beginning. Tell me about that day on the SkyTrain, because I think anyone who's been on the SkyTrain has probably witnessed people in, you know, in some sort of distress, but maybe never quite that bad. Exactly. So um, I want to just preface by saying that even though I found out that the girl on the SkyTrain 
actually was overdosing, chances are if you see someone on the SkyTrain in medical distress and you don't know what it is, you don't know what the signs mean, it is very likely an overdose, which is why public health education and overdose education is so important. So to take you back to 2018, what happened, I was sitting there and this girl got on who looked just about my age. I was 16 and um, then she collapsed and she had blue fingertips and she had small pupils and I didn't know I just thought what with what I you know I've always believed like she was just fainting or um, hadn't eaten breakfast or something and like you said nobody thought it was an overdose so that incident even though that's not a rare occurrence in BC with the number of overdoses we have it's really sparked my keen interest in public health and it really made me think you know I was a high school student at the time and if I had ever been taught about the signs of overdose or how to use naloxone, I would have handled that situation so differently. So you walked away from that and it must have, it must have obviously lived with you, right? You, you thought about it and thought, what can I do? And realized, I mean, I don't think, you know, back in 2018, 2017, although we were already in what was a public health crisis or a public health emergency, I don't think a lot of us recognized what, what an overdose would look like or how even naloxone works. So what did you do from there? You decided to do something about it. Exactly. So, um, exactly. The incident rattled me, right? Like I was, I was, I really was bothered that this was happening in my own community and it's happening in all our communities in BC. So from there, I joined uh, um, a community group called the Tri-Cities Community Action Team, which is um, Port Moody, Port Coquitlam and Coquitlam. And um, they do like destigmatizing campaigns and community awareness um, events um, so I got to make some really great connections there to the Fraser Health Authority, share um, family and community services, and so many other local um, organizations that were really willing to give me help in um, eventually, when I started university in 2020, starting a um, all-youth um, education group that goes into classes. So we're called Nalax Home. And uh, School District 43 teachers will book us to come into their classes to talk to their students about um, the drug poisoning crisis, signs of overdose, um, the toxic drug supply, stigma, naloxone, and naloxone training. So it's really shaped my career path. And as, especially as I study health sciences, there's a lot of overwork, overlap between my, my naloxone work and my studies. You must get, I mean, I'd be curious to know how, what the reaction is, because I imagine much like you were at 16, the kids that you speak to must have a lot of questions. Exactly. So what sets us apart from other groups is that we are all youth. So everyone on our team, everyone in, who's presenting in schools between the ages of 16 and 24. So if you're hearing substance use, safety talks, and the importance of naloxone from a teacher or from um, a parent or a police officer or an adult, it's going to resonate far less than if it's someone your own age, someone you relate to. So because we go in there, there's already a barrier removed of not getting in trouble. There's, the students don't worry about getting in trouble because we are one of them. So um, the reactions used to, like overwhelmingly positive. We've had so many students ask really important life-saving questions that they might not have had the chance to ask otherwise. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been really positive, and I think students are just happy to learn something rather than nothing about this. Yeah, what sort of questions? I mean, without going into you know the detail, what sort of questions do you often get that that are even a surprise to you, or maybe they're not a surprise to you, still now? 
Well, honestly, this is such a good question because I I will address when, that when we go into classes, there's such a range of knowledge. There's always students who know a lot about this, and maybe they maybe some who actually use substances themselves. Maybe some people who have lost a loved one to overdose or overdose themselves. And then we have um, this other group of students that's super common as well, and they're keen to learn, but they had never, they almost don't know what we're going through because there's this mindset, there's this idea that if you're not using drugs, it doesn't apply to you, which is obviously so incorrect as a public health emergency. Um, but some of the questions we'll get um, totally fall onto that range. So we'll get questions like, well, um, people who ask specifics of like where can I go get my drugs tested and what what are what does um what do they ask me when I get an naloxone kit are they going to collect my name and then there's other questions about like well what what is naloxone why what how why don't I know about the overdose crisis if it's happening so much around me so it's a real range Interesting. And where do you get a naloxone kit? That's a really good question, actually, because I actually wouldn't know the answer to that, and I should know the answer to that. We, you know what? That's one of the things that we probably, as British Columbians, should all know the answer to. It's just not talked about enough. You get it at your local health unit or pharmacy or a drugstore. So just anywhere you can go pick up one of those. They're free. Um, I usually just go to Shoppers Drug Mart, London Drugs, or a health unit nearby. Of course. Uh, makes perfect sense. You would like to see this expanded because I gather, as you mentioned, you you do this on a request basis, but you would like to see this added to the curriculum in BC. Uh, why do you think that would make it? What would you like to see ultimately uh, with with the with on the curriculum in BC? What do you think would work? It's a great question. So yes, we are doing this on a request basis at the moment. So teachers will reach out to us because they want us to come talk to their students. And we need to break that barrier of getting to not just the teachers who want us to come in and talk to their students, but the teachers who maybe aren't keen on this topic, but because there's simply no more excuses about not educating younger generations about this public health emergency when 10,000 British Columbians have died. It is not something that that is a personal issue anymore we are all likely to witness an overdose where whether you're downtown or on public transportation or walking the streets overdoses are happening everywhere much like other public health emergencies we have to do our part to stay safe and to keep each other safe what has been the resistance to it i mean i can imagine what the resistance is to it this is still a taboo subject people don't necessarily want to teach their kids how to use naloxone to save people having overdoses on the sky train uh do you do you feel some of that pushback what does it look like to be honest of the parents of the kids we've gone to we haven't had much pushback um in like social media comments we'll occasionally get the parents who are like don't encourage my kids to use drugs. And that's not what we're doing at all. We address how toxic BC's drug supply is. What we do instead, though, is we address, like I was saying before, that this is a public health emergency. Everyone, just like COVID-19, when we all were wearing our masks, and we all were practicing social distancing and encouraged to get vaccinations, we need the same widespread response as that and that includes public education and starting with the younger generation just so they're aware of what's going on around us yeah, what have you seen as the benefit for i mean you mentioned earlier that just if, if you're not a drug user this is still good stuff to know uh, and it reminds me a lot of those public education campaigns that we all grew up with i mean anybody of any age will have grown up during some public 
uh, information campaign. Clearly, in my in my age group, it was drinking and driving was the big was the big one. Uh, obviously, back a long time ago, long before your time. But uh, so you really see this as as just public health knowledge that everyone should have. I do. So there's kind of two parts of it, too. I think um, if there's one short-term goal that students can do, it's that they go after the presentation and they pick up an naloxone kit. So if they're ever in the situation where they think someone's overdosing, they can use naloxone. Um, for reference, it is harmless if used in the event of a non-overdose. But the long-term goal of our presentations is for students to think a little more um, comprehensively about the drug poisoning crisis and to try to erase that internalized um, stigma we have around the people who use drugs. So instead of thinking it's just one bad choice and somebody got addicted, understanding and approaching um, your language choices with compassion by understanding that people who use drugs often are using them to cope with trauma or because they um, were born addicted to drugs. There's a million reasons. And it's important that we think of them as people and not just people who use drugs. And Chloe, I know you'll you'll know this, of course, but you know the woman you saw saved. They're one of the lucky ones. A lot of people, especially teens and people, you know, they they use alone. Um, and we know that one of the big crises with the overdose with, with the toxic drug crisis in this province, specifically, but right across the country, is that a lot of people use alone and die alone. Uh, when people, you know, and, and therein lies part of the problem. So lifting that stigma and teaching people more about it, maybe you help save a few lives of the people we don't see, uh, and that always seems to be the real problem. 100%. That's the goal ultimately is to destigmatize um, addictions treatment too. So for people who are using alone and feel like there's not safe to disclose to family members, um, normalizing getting going to treatment and, and, and recovery. We, like I was just saying, it's super important that we remove the stigma from um, people who use drugs in, so that they're able to access treatment services in the same way we feel so comfortable accessing treatment services for physical health care. Hopefully one day the overdose rates go down because people are a lot more comfortable seeking treatment and recovery. Well, Chloe Goodison, uh, thank you for sharing both the inspiration and the work that you're doing uh, and keep up the good work. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Have a good one. 